The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm delighted to welcome to the show today Stephen Mailer, who has a rich history in studying the truth around Egypt and also has an interesting experience of studying and researching the crystal skulls. And we'll talk later about them and perhaps what the connection is between the Crystal Skulls and Egypt. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So, I'd love to, to hear, first of all, about how your fascination uh, with Egypt began. Yes. Well, of course, there is a long version, and we'll, we'll, we'll use the shortened version. We'll use the short one today, yeah. <laughs> it really, really goes back to when I was a small boy. Uh, to my mother's blessed memory, I grew up in New York City in the late 40s and early 50s, so... Um, I'm dating myself, and, and at that time, there was the two great pictorial magazines of the day, Life Magazine and National Geographic. My mother subscribed to both, and it was a great learning experience for me. I clearly remember around the age of eight, opening up an issue of National Geographic and stopping dead on a picture of the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx. Now, at that age, I could not articulate, I could not understand what was happening, but there was a connection made to me unconsciously by the Sphinx. And the Sphinx is the key to my whole study of the field, uh, that connection, and we'll talk about her, her later. Um, so, but, you know, it wasn't something profound where I decided at eight years old, oh, I'm going to become an Egyptologist, or I'm going to study all there is about this culture. No, but it was a fascination about anything ancient Egyptian that I would ever see that I just continued through my life. Now, to move forward to, let's say, 1968, I'd already graduated college. The Vietnam War was amongst us in America, and uh, I was given a draft notice. So I enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. I am a Vietnam-era veteran. And during those four years I was in the Air Force, I decided I was going to spend that time doing the research, reading things that I hadn't had time for in college. And I was always interested in the works of Sigmund Freud. I came across a used paperback. It was the last things Freud wrote. The book was called, actually, uh, Moses and Monotheism. It was a series of of essays that Freud had written for the psychoanalytic journal, journal Imago in Vienna, starting in 1934, where he postulated, based on some archaeology that was being done by the Germans, that Moses, the Hebrew lawgiver, might have been an Egyptian priest under a particular king who got the title Akhenaten. That's a whole other discussion. I wrote a book about that. But that idea fascinated me. And so I looked at this book, read this book, and 
you know, again, to bring it to where we are, I was hooked. Then decided that the study of Egyptology, ancient Egypt, was going to be my life's work, and particularly this king, this particular king, Akhenaten. I was fascinated with him, and I've spent the last 45 years reading and studying everything I can about this particular person and about the field. And then we just shifted forward. Uh, I became, I be, then went on a whole self-education trip in Egyptology, studied all the great masters like Flinders Petrie, Gardner, all, all, um, Breasted in the U.S., all the great field men, men, in the field, men and women uh, in the field of Egyptology. And, but it seemed that something was lacking. I then got involved in the 70s in the Rosicrucian Order, and that's another thing we could speak about. I became a staff research scientist and archivist for the Rosicrucian Order, AMARC, A-M-O-R-C, which stands for Ancient Mystical Order Rosicrucis in San Jose, California, which at that time was the World Sea, the world headquarters of the Rosicrucian Order. I got involved in their archives, and their tradition was that, that there was a whole different system involved in ancient Egypt. But even there, it seemed like something was still lacking. Again, to make this long story short, for 15 years I was trying to get it together to get to Egypt. I finally discovered a book, a whole series of books, which led me to believe that there still was a living tradition in Egypt. And this is key for our discussion. A living oral tradition still existing in Egypt. A couple of books. Now, uh, I don't know, you know, with your guests who you've spoken to in the past, if you've heard this name, I'm sure many of your listeners have, but the great Armenian Greek mystic George Gurdjieff wrote a book uh, where he apparently uh, had met up with the indigenous tradition in Egypt too. He kept talking about an esoteric Christianity, a Christianity that existed thousands of years before Jesus. Then I came across another book by a man named Paul Brunton who wrote A Search for Secret Egypt in 1935, where it seemed to me that he also connected with that living tradition and learned things. So I became aware. The final book that did it was by a British author, Murray Hope, who I believe has passed on. I was in correspondence with her in the 90s. She wrote a book called Ancient Egypt, The Serious Connection, where she talked about connecting with this living tradition still existing in Egypt. That was it for me. I discovered this book in early 1991-92. I just had to get to Egypt. A series of miraculous events occurred where the money came to me, and I went to Egypt in November of 1992. It is now over 20 years ago where I met the man who would become my teacher and master. His name was Abdel Hakim Awiyan. Everybody knew him as Hakim. Everybody still knows him today as Hakim. He passed in 2008 at the age of 82, but from 1992 to 2008, I was his main disciple and student. And he presented a whole different tradition from the oral tradition of what was ancient Egypt. And that has become my life's work. He and I collaborated on two books together. We redefined the field as chemitology, not Egyptology. And that's where we are today. Well, Stephen, that's, that's, thank you for that very, very quick <laughs> run through. But it, it gives it all. And, and what a gift to have Hakim as your main teacher, because I know about Hakim uh, through a number of guests that I've had on the show. Carmen Bolter's Pyramid Code was very much based around Hakim. I introduced uh, Carmen to Hakim at the Cairo airport in 1997. Oh, wow, brilliant. <laughs> so, so why does he call it chemitology or chemitology rather than Egyptology? Excellent starting point. Because Hakim was telling us that uh, the word Egypt itself is based on the term Egyptos, which is a Greek term. So it's actually a Greek word. It's not even an indigenous word. And it basically referred to just one site. Uh, Egyptos was a contraction from the term Hegipetos. The term in the ancient language was Het-Ka-Pata. Het means place. 
Tzedakah is a, is a term we could have a whole discussion on, but it's like the, what you could say, the double, the etheric body. Um, uh, Hakim defined it as the physical projection of the soul, like the personality. And then Ptah was one of those so-called creator gods. We can talk about what that means, the word netter. Net doesn't really mean God, but we could say Ptah was a masculine creative impulse. So what the, what the expression is saying is here was the place where the, the Ka, the physical projection of this principle, manifested. And it was only one site. It was what the Greeks called Memphis, ancient term Menefer, where there's a stele there with this term Hetkapata appears. So it wasn't the name of the civilization, just one site. Hakim would tell us the ancients called it Kempt. They didn't write vowels, so all we get down is the signs as K-M-T. Kempt. We say Kemet. I spell it, it's been spelled many, many different ways. As with this ancient language, it, uh, spelling is not important. Pronunciation and sound is the most important. So, people can spell it K-E-M-E-T, K-E-M-I-T. I spell it K-H-E-M-I-T. It's Chemt or Chemet. It meant the black land. It meant the soil that's deposited from the Nile when she floods. And that soil, rich alluvial soil, full of minerals and nutrients, was the basis of the agriculture, the basis of the civilization. So they called their civilization the black land to differentiate from what eventually would become the red land, the desert. This was all fertile soil. So Kemet was the name of the civilization. So therefore, we teach Kemetology, not Egyptology. So, fill us in on, on what Hakim, I mean, it was a long, long time together, but again, the short version. What, what did you learn from Hakim about the real Egyptology or Kemetology? Right. Well, what I learned from Hakim, as you said, I could spend the rest of my lifetime elucidating <laughs> and would not cover it all. I mean, not only did he teach me the true history of this ancient land, he, to- he taught me the true history of current Egypt, too, a true history of Islam, a true history of Judaism, Christianity, and all ancient religions. I mean, the man was, as we described him, my research partner and I, a walking library. But what he taught us was that there was a previously very highly advanced civilization that what Egyptologists are looking at, what they call dynastic Egypt, is basically Greco-Roman mythology. It is only ideas that they've gotten from what the Greeks and Romans who went into Egypt translated, they thought, the ideas and presented it to the Western world. Nobody ever listened to the indigenous wisdom keepers of the country itself. So all Egyptology, as we say, is Greco-Roman mythology. It starts basically at 3100 BCE, out of nowhere, seemingly building temples and pyramids, and this advanced civilization coming from nowhere. Where was it developmental phase. They don't talk about it. There isn't any, they think. But the fact is, Hakim tells us there was a much, much previously advanced civilization over 10,000 years ago. They built the pyramids, carved the Sphinx. Pyramids were never tombs for anyone, and the Sphinx is not a man worshipping the sun. So it starts from there. So we get a whole now redefinition. And again, he starts out talking about cycles instead of one of the common I've been known as a paradigm buster. In my first book, Land of Osiris, Land of Osiris I bring up the great uh, uh, gentleman who, who coined the first paradigm shift, Thomas Kuhn. And the idea that, that once uh, at science changes, it's usually from the outside, not from the inside. So I was saying it was time for a paradigm shift. And this is what chemotology is, a paradigm shift, that we have not been told the truth of human civilization, of who we are, where we come from. We're led to believe that after, before 10,000 years ago, we were just crude cave people living in huts, drawing pictures on the walls, and this is totally 
against what the indigenous teaching tells us. People who studied the Vedas, if you've ever had Michael Cremo on, he will talk about the Vedas talking about civilizations going back millions of years. Well, Hakim talked about cycles. He talked about five stages of the sun. The sun, as it moves across the sky in the daytime, represents stages of our development in consciousness and development of our prehistory. So we're talking about never-ending cycles. In this teaching, Hakim talks about no beginning, no end, only indeterminable cycles. And again, the one paradigm that I've been most willing, most anxious to get rid of is this Darwin idea of linear evolution, that we've just come in a straight line from the primitive to the complex. We today represent the sum total, the most advanced creature that's ever been on this planet, and the indigenous teaching completely says the opposite, saying that no, there's no such thing. Everything in nature moves in cycles. Everything is cyclical. All energy moves in cycles. Humans have moved in cycles. Civilizations have risen and fallen, risen and fallen. There we get the ideas of Atlantis and Mu, and we can discuss that too. But civilization, risen and fallen, risen and fallen. And so he described for us a 65,000-year cycle that's coming to an end now. And we talk about five stages of the sun, and I'd like to continue with that, if you'd like. Actually, we're just coming back to our first break, Stephen, and we'll take that. But I really do want to come back to that point, the five stages of the sun and these cycles, and the notion of uh, advanced civilizations, and also exactly what the advanced technology was that the ancient Egyptians had. Beautiful. So we'll take our, our first break now. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. 
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Just a reminder to go to my website, www.petertung.com, where all of the information of the work that we're doing, uh, past newsletters, past radio shows are all there. And also www.myheartcenteredjourney.com, uh, our Ambassadors of Light program, which uh, we actually have a class tomorrow evening, Thursday at 5.30, in which I'll be talking about uh, current events taking place in the spiritual worlds and the energetics that are with us at this very exciting time here on the planet. I have with me today Stephen Mailer, and I'm sure listeners have already got the understanding that he's a very, very knowledgeable, experienced wisdom keeper himself. Stephen, before the break, you said you were going to continue to talk about the five stages of the sun and the cycles of time, so please continue. Yes, it is the basis, the foundation of our teaching of climatology, and I also would like people to know that I have a background in archaeology and prehistory, and that's how I uh, approach the subject. I have three degrees in the sciences. I, I originally was pre-med. I have a background in the hard sciences and physics, so this is where my orientation is, and this is why um, Hakim oriented himself so much and chose me, because as I just would like to continue, before we do the five stages, just to say, the uniqueness of the man is what we really are concentrating here because uh, people ask me, well, are there other wisdom keepers in Egypt? Yes, of course. They're at every site, but most of them don't speak English and they don't com- communicate with each other. They're like the masters of each site. They know exactly what that temple is, what the, what the pr- principles are there, and they give it to whoever wants to know and they share, but they don't usually uh, spread the teachings in a coherent form. Hakim was unique because, as I say, at the age of six, for him, he was chosen by his family. His family, the Awiyani tribe, is a long line of wisdom keepers. In every generation, there's been a wisdom keeper in his family. So he was chosen by his uncle and by his mother to be the wisdom keeper, to continue forward. But his uniqueness was, because of his fascination with what he saw in tombs and temples and pyramids, he decided to become an academic. He went and got dual degrees in archaeology and Egyptology from what was then Fawad University, today is Cairo University, and as a young boy, he had gone all over Egypt seeking out the elders at every site everywhere and learning the secrets of each site. So he was unique and he was able to put it all together in this coherent system. And what he saw as the basis of the system was the daily movement of the sun, which of course is, was key to every ancient culture, the daylight, the, the nighttime, what, what daytime hours would be, what you plan for your harvest, for whatever, for your civilization. So movement of the sun has always been important. Well, for the ancient commissions, when we say commissions now, not Egyptians, they broke it down to five stages. They saw a, a, a beginning stage, dawn, which was characterized by the scarab beetle called Heper. And it's called the driller. Why are they call it the driller? Well, the scarab beetle is a hermaphrodite. It's both both male and female. And when it lays its eggs, it immediately gets a pile of dung of waste from another creature, puts the, the, ball, the egg in there and rolls it in front of itself. This is amazing because, as we know in nature, what is waste to one is food for another. But so that when the young is born, the egg is hatched, it has immediate source of food. But what they noticed was the scarab beetle pushing the, the, the dung beetle, the dung in front of it was like pushing the ball of the sun up, the disc of the sun up at dawn. So it became a symbol of dawn. So that's the birth of consciousness. It's, it's when we're first becoming awake, we first become aware. Because not only the stages of the sun actually represent daily movement of the sun, they represent 
stages in our developing consciousness and times in prehistory. So the beginning phase, the beginning cycle of the, of the, of the five is Heper. Then it goes to Ra. So immediately people are saying, oh, wait a minute, I know that term, Ra is the sun god. We say, thank you, wrong, thanks for playing. No, <laughs> Ra is only one-fifth of this understanding. Ra is the sun at noon. Ra is called the stubborn, characterized by a ram. To the ancient people, not as much a donkey, but a ram was a very stubborn animal. Why do they call it stubborn? Well, because it represents the adolescent stage of consciousness. We all know, if we have teenagers, we all remember when we were teenagers, we think we know everything. So it's, we're starting to develop a consciousness, an awareness, but we're stubborn to want to listen and go on further. So it's the stubborn stage. Third stage, in sun in the early afternoon, was called Oon, depicted by a mature man standing upright on a staff. It's but called the wise. It's when we're now becoming conscious. We're adult. We've, de- we've achieved a degree of consciousness awareness. Fourth stage, known as Aten, and this is where we can return to our King Akhenaten later. Aten means the wiser, usually depicted by an old man hunched over a staff. It is the sun in the full flowering, the sun in the late afternoon, in the brightest, its full glory, right before it's starting to head towards twilight. And it's the full flowering of consciousness, the wiser. It is said that in this stage of consciousness, everyone is in some degree of enlightenment, using all their senses to highest stages. And we're going to return to that for a second. But we have to go to the fifth stage. The fifth stage, known as Amun or Imin, and there is no image, originally no image. Very important for students of the history of Judaism, that this image in ancient Egyptian lore had no image. The Jewish God is supposed to have no image. Where do you think they got it from? That's my second book. Just a brief synopsis there. Uh, so, the f- fourth, fifth stage is Amun, the hidden, no image, and it is characterized by darkness, by separation, by uh, duality. So, then when I'm lecturing, when I'm presenting, I stop here and I ask the audience, five stages of the sun, where do you think we have been? What stage for the last 5,000 years? And the answer is? (laughs) You're not playing. Amen. (laughs) So <laughs> in the darkness. We're taught, we're taught by all our academicians, by all our people, our teachers in the world today, that we humans in 2013, in this 21st century, are the epitome that's ever been on this planet. We are the most superior. We are the most intelligent. We are the most advanced. And here, the indigenous teachers are telling us we are in the low end of the cycle for the last 5,000 years. And what is that characterized by? Patriarchy. Patriarchal religions, the rise of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Systematic, stylized warfare. There may have been war before 5,000 years ago, but it was not institutionalized. What we have in this last 5,000 years of darkness is institutionalized warfare, separation, and all the racism, isms, ageism, sexism, all the isms we can think of today in the last 5,000 years. This is hard for a lot of people to accept. Many people who are on the path, who are on the spiritual path, and have studied, they can accept this, knowing that we're not the most enlightened thing that's ever been on this planet. But this is a key teaching that for the last 5,000 years, we have been in the age of separation, duality, and darkness. And the reason for Hakim bringing the teachings out, the reason why I'm here sitting talking to you today is that we, it's over and we are coming into the new Hepper, the new dawn, exactly how you introduced me when you, when you did your introduction at the beginning. Hakim called this time now the awakening. This is why he brought the teachings to the West, why his masters, his teachers, 
charged him with bringing these teachings to the West, why he sought all many, and I'm not the only one. I'm not going to stand there and say I'm the only one. I was his main disciple. I'm the ones that he settled on to write the books because he needed someone who could put it in the right words, and he was happy that I could do that. But there were many, many students, many, many students who came to Hakim over the last 30 years. His house in Egypt, in Nazlet Esaman, the village that's right next to the Giza Plateau, was an international hostel for the last 30 or 40 years, where his children grew up hearing all different languages from all people from around the world who would come to see Hakim. It was once known, uh, not anymore, but it was once known that all you had to do was go to the Cairo airport, get out, get your bags, come out, look for a cab driver, and say, take me to a master, someone who knows the truth about ancient Egypt, and they would take you to Giza, to the house of Abdel Hakim. So there was a big focus, uh, obviously, Stephen, recently on the December 21st, 2012 date. Was that uh, a date or a, a part of the cycle that Hakim also talked about? <laughs> That's a good question. In 2005, I brought a group to Egypt, and we were sitting around, and one of the people asked him that very question. Hakim, what do you think of the December 21st, 2012 Mayan end date? What does it mean? He said, without hesitation, means nothing to me, because I do not recognize the calendar. Okay. Then, but then he went on to describe the awakening, that all indigenous people all around the world all say the same thing now. We're coming to the end of cycle. It's a Mayan thing. It's an Aztec thing. It's an Incan thing. It's a, it's a, a Tibetan thing. I mean, it's a Native American thing. So many Native American tribes all talking about the end of cycles. So then he went on to say that all it was to him was an end of a cycle. And I have, to, I have to add to that. You talked about the crystal skulls. Well, I'm just going to add something quickly. In 11-11-11, we did a crystal skull conference in L.A. One of the guests was uh, Don Alejandro Siraj Olaj. He is the, the head of the Quiche Maya of all of Guatemala. Somebody asked him the same question. What does December 21st, 2012 mean? He said nothing. He said December 22nd would be the same day. He said we do not recognize this end doom of gloom, but he said it would be a change. He said it is the end of a cycle. He says we're going to a new level of consciousness. So here's a Mayan wisdom keeper saying the same exact thing that Hakim said. So he then explained to the people that we are going into a change, the awakening is here, but it's not any specific date. As we know, here we are, 2013, it didn't happen, the world didn't end, all the doom and gloom that was prophesied on television and all the books that were written that we were going to see this great shift, oh, there was going to be solar eclipses, there was going to be this, there was going to be that. And uh, people have felt the shift now. Now, I mean, people who are very sensitive, like my wife is one, feel a subtle shift in energies now that is different from last year. But this is not, you know, it wasn't what what everyone predicted it would be, the movie 2012, et cetera, et cetera. So he basically said that he doesn't recognize modern calendars. I mean, it's so, not, not something that the ancients recognized, that our, our system of calendars, of dates. But that definitely now, he would tell me each year I would come to see him, 2003, 2004, 2005, each year things were speeding up. Each year people are becoming more awake, and that's what we're looking for. The consciousness, what you're doing, your work, with so many people like you are doing, to bring me on, to bring so many guests on, to share this information, esoteric information, which people don't get from the media, don't get in academia, don't get in college, don't get in the standard textbooks. Uh, uh, this is the awakening. So this is what we're doing. So this is what it meant. Uh, I always, I said for years that December 22nd, 2012 would be the same as December 21st. And it basically was.
So Stephen, just looking from the other perspective, so if you have an advanced civilization, you have higher consciousness, what's the trigger that brings about the fall from that higher consciousness to, to the dark age? What, what brings it down? That's a great question. Uh, uh, it is a natural cycle. So here we have to discuss that it's not either or. Uh, the cycle was going to end. I mean, the cycle was going to end one way or another. But we believe there was a worldwide cataclysmic event. Uh, this is docu- documented in a couple of books I could recommend. Uh, there's two British authors, Alan and Dallaire, wrote a book called Cataclysm, 9500 BC. Barbara Hanclough, who was their publisher, wrote her, her book based on it called Catastrophobia. She has now reissued it, republished it last year called Awakening the Planetary Mind, Barbara Hanclough. She, she discusses, they discuss the possibility of a worldwide cataclysmic event happening between 14,000 and 11,000 11, years ago. They put the date in 9500 BC, 11,500 years ago. It seems like there was an event that, that impacted civilizations all around the world. This is probably the origin of the fall of Atlantis. It impacted Kemet too. So um, things shifted, but it is a natural cycle. Hakim was adamant to say that no one is at fault. This was a natural cycle. You know, the fall of Atlantis myth tries to make it like we were at fault. We had technology and we misused it. Now, there is something to that. There's actually a a, a, a series of glyphs on the wall in the basement of the Temple of Hathor Tendar, which are known as the crypts, which actually discusses the possibility of the theme where, where the fall of Atlantis came from, a misuse of ancient technology. But the fact is, it was a natural cycle. It was a natural cycle that ended and happens. And usually the end of the cycles are characterized by significant, dramatic earth changes, as we are now. Now, to talk about global warming, I mean, the global shift it is today, there's no doubt, and I would recommend everybody see a film called Chasing Ice, which I just saw recently. It'll put to bed any doubts anyone could ever have that there's a global climate change. Uh, we definitely humans have exacerbated it. There's no doubt. But it's not either or. In other words, it's not, oh, it's just a natural carbon dioxide cycle. We had nothing to do with it. No, it's all humans' fault. It's all our fault. It is both. It is a natural cycle. We know the carbon dioxide cycle shifts every couple thousands of years. There's no doubt about it. But there's also no doubt that humans have exacerbated it. So again, that happened, we say an event happening around 11,500 years ago. There's many different opinions, uh, theories have offered what it was from. Uh, a lot of people believe, Barbara Cloud believes in the book, it was what is known as the Vela, V-E-L-A, supernova, which may have impacted our whole solar system. Uh, also, Dr. Robert Schock, great geologist, believes it was solar activity, increased tremendous solar activity. But something happened which impacted the Earth and ended uh, the age of Aten and moved us into Amun. So uh, right now we're moving into our second break, Stephen, so we'll take that break now. We'll talk Great. about the advanced technology and higher consciousness of ancient Egypt when we return. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. If you are looking to shift from struggle to a life of alignment with your deepest truth, you'll want to tune in to Thresholds to Awakening with host Sway Emily Spilkin. Our program will help you discover that your deepest challenges are not mistakes, but opportunities to become who you really are. Thresholds to Awakening. Enter your darkness to find your light, where Sway speaks with spiritual luminaries, cutting-edge thought leaders, and experts in the field of transformation. 
Listen live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tong. Just want to take this opportunity to thank Voice America and my engineer, Matt, who's doing a great job making sure we're all on track, and my producer, Brandy Jackson. And in my chat with her this morning, we've got some new statistics becoming available for the show, and I was delighted to learn from her this morning that uh, we have listeners for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation in 80 different countries around the world. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, would be top of the, the poll, but big listenerships also in Canada, Australia, Thailand, the United Kingdom, and China uh, would be the top five. But um, it's really, really heartwarming for me to know that we've picked uh, picked up so many listeners uh, at a global level for this show. And one of the reasons is having guests on the show like Stephen Mailer, who clearly has a tremendous understanding and background of the ancient kingdoms. So, Stephen, I'd love you now to share with our listeners uh, your information and knowledge about the actual ancient advanced technologies and consciousness that the Egyptians had. Yes, well, it was actually that point that started me and, and many, many other researchers to question academic Egyptology. It was looking at the magnificent structures that we see, the Great Pyramid, the Sphinx, the Temple of Karnak, the Temple of Luxor, magnificent structures, and it seems like there was... There, it was so much more advanced than what was later in the Greek and Roman cultures, which inherited everything from them. So at, even way before meeting Hakim, way before going out, I started to question uh, the ideas that these structures could have been built with crude tools like copper chisels and stone founders. It just didn't seem correct. Well, a great... Um, Jolting for me happened in 1996 when I read an article that was reprinted in a magazine called Atlantis Rising, a popular magazine, by a British, then they called him British engineer named Christopher Dunn. 
Uh, and in, in the name of the, the title was Advanced Machining in Ancient Egypt. Well, here was not an Egyptologist, not an archaeologist, but an engineer. An engineer with tremendous background in, in space-age technology, lasers, and high-end high construction, high-end construction. And he was saying, impossible, that the, the, the tools that the Egyptologists are telling us could not be the tools that built these things. And he's looking at advanced machining. And so one thing came to another. I became friends with Chris Dunn. We are great friends and colleagues today. We're co-leading a tour together we're going to discuss. And so it was through really the emphasis of an engineer, because he got other technological people involved, that we really started to question. And then, so then Hakim comes in, when I meet Hakim, to tell us, oh, sure, there was an advanced, very advanced civilization. So it is the material. We look at things in rose granite, gray granite, black granite, basalt, diorite, and uh, alabaster, which is calcite, some of the hardest stones on our planet, with magnificent precision and, and, and tolerances that we can hardly duplicate today. We can duplicate today, but it would be very costly. And again, so it's been the emphasis of the work of Chris Dunn. Two books I highly recommend, The Giza Power Plant and Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt of Chris Dunn. He, better than anyone, has led the field to show that it's clearly, clearly, these structures, the precision, into, in other words, we're seeing perfect right angles, perfect flat surfaces in granite. I mean, Chris has measured tolerances in these boxes that we see of two ten thousandths of an inch. The most that's called for today in manufacturing a tolerance in granite is a quarter of an inch. That's all. I mean, we could do it again, but... So the reason Chris says to us, why did they do it? There had to be a specific reason why they cut to such tremendous precision and tolerances and perfect precision. Not only did he say that they have to have the tools to make these items, they had to have, in the field of metrology, to measure, they had to have the measuring tools to even measure that they were at the precision they wanted. So we're looking at tremendous sophistication. And again, then Hakim would give us some of the ideas of how it was done. Hakim came to me. He saw my background. He immediately perceived what I would be good at, what I should be. So he told me for my work with him to concentrate on sound and water. Sound and water. The knowledge of that the ancients had and the interplay of both that they used. The basis of the civilization, the basis of their energy. We're looking at a civilization. I often say, when we talk about these, we discuss one great man who a physicist named Andrea Puharik said virtually invented the 20th century, and that's Nikola Tesla. I say Nikola Tesla only rediscovered what once was already known. So we're looking at a civilization that was bathed in free energy free energy, using water as the source of that energy, and sound in a way that we're just rediscovering today, sound to create anti-gravity fields, to lift this tremendous tonnage. No way this was done by physical means. I mean, we're looking at 200-ton blocks, 100-ton blocks, and people think that's it. No, 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 no. Zahi Huas never announced that they had found a foundation stone inside the Great Pyramid that they estimated weighed 800 tons. We have in the quarry at Aswan an unfinished obelisk, meaning an obelisk that they were cutting, that they had any intent, every intention to raise that's 110 feet long, estimated to weigh 1,200 tons. So we're, we're going to stand and have these Egyptologists have us believe that they did this with pulleys, with fulcrums, with ropes, and, and weight. Nonsense. The only way, Hakim would say, to deal with this type of weight was to deal with the gravity. 
And he told us, and he showed us the implements, that they would create an anti-gravity field with sound. Therefore, no gravity, no mass, no weight. That's how the Great Pyramid was built. And, and what was its purpose? Free energy machine. That's Chris Dunn's landmark book, 1998, The Giza Power Plant. He went in as, as the impeccable engineer that he is, and he back-engineered the Great Pyramid and said it was a free energy device, producing many, many, many different types of energy. I can tell you, Peter, through my work now, 40 years of plus of really doing this intensely, that we will never determine in the current lifetime, maybe in the rest of this century, all the different types of energies that the Great Pyramid produced. Electricity, electromagnetism, quantum waves, uh, hydrogen, uh, uh, electricity, everything you can think of. Chris concentrated mainly in his book that it produced hydrogen gas. He, de- he thought it was from chemicals. He postulated that they used it to like hydrocarbonic acid and zinc mixed together under the right conditions would release tremendous amounts of hydrogen. Hakim was adamant that the source was water, that they broke water down in the Great Pyramid into hydrogen and oxygen, and the hydrogen was used as fuel. But that was just one aspect. I have a physicist that is a colleague who lives in Ukraine. He's one of the world-leading physicists. I've got to say this name slowly. His name is Dr. Vladimir Krasnilohovitz. We call him Dr. K. You can see why. <laughs> he is one of the world's leading theoretical quantum physicists. He has speculated, he has theorized that whoever built the Great Pyramid had a knowledge of quantum physics that we're only approaching today. He claims he has a device, that he has a portable device, if we can only get the funding together to get him to Egypt, that can measure quantum waves produced still in the Great Pyramid. And he's saying these are pulse quantum waves, which means, just to break it down shortly so people scientific can understand, that he would you develop a baseline, a background, that's the normal quantum waves. Then if you see that it's pulsing, that, that this is not normal, this is not natural, this is man-made. So if he can determine by measurement that the Great Pyramid is still pulsing quantum waves, it was incorporated into the structure intentionally. And so that's another thing to go. So to say to you, what was it used for as a giant free energy device? And it was not alone. All the pyramids were connected. My first book is called Land of Osiris. In the ancient term, it's called Boo Wizard. Wizard is how Osiris was pronounced to the ancients. It's also the source where the word wisdom and wizard comes from. This was all connected by 25 square miles. I, in my book, I talk about the, the site of Dashur in the south to the site of Abu Wash in the north. It includes Giza, includes Saqqara, includes Abu Sir. All connected by stonemasonry pyramids and temples and underground water tunnels. The engineering is so amazing that before they even built anything above ground, they drilled miles and miles of tunnels through limestone bedrock to reach an underground river to bring that water to the current Nile Valley. And that was the beginning before they even built anything on top. Then they built pyramids and temples all interconnected as a huge ancient energy grid producing free energy. So what, what was the role of the Sphinx? Uh, she is the first of the first. It is not a man making an offering to the sun that is nonsense. According to the indigenous tradition, the Sphinx is known as Tefnut. They say, in their tradition of, of understanding, creation is feminine. In other words, we would say that we would think that this was a matriarchal civilization. Descent went from mother to daughter, so that the men and women were equal. Well, not exactly. In their understanding, the feminine was slightly more equal than the masculine, because it's the feminine that calls the masculine into being. So they saw creation as being feminine. So they saw what they called what was created and what was uncreated was given the title Newt, N-U-T. 
That is what you could call the primary mother goddess. It's not goddess yet. It's not religion. But it is the understanding that she is the creatress of all. All is created. All is uncreated. So the mythology goes that when Newt wanted to manifest herself on the earth to show herself in the physical form, she spit. And where she spit is the Sphinx. And that's her name, Tef Newt. Tef means the spit, the spittle of Newt. Now, people would ask him, why spit? Well, he would say... That is something that cannot be defined. I mean, each time we expectorate, and I'll use the proper term, um, it cannot be measured. There's no volume, there's no mass. It's different each time. So he was basically saying that the ancient commissions were saying, we cannot really define the Great Mother. I mean, the Great Mother was it. But if we're going to define her, we'll give us this physical statue, and they use the symbol of a lioness, because a lioness to the ancient commissions was a wonderful mother. She was a great mom, always protective and protective of her young. So the Sphinx becomes an aspect of the great mother, the lioness-human combination that is the great mother. And she was the first thing created above ground, before the pyramids. Hakim dated the Sphinx at 54,000 years. I'll say it again, 54,000 thousand years. Uh, we know during the work of John Anthony West and the great geologist Dr. Robert Schock, they have redated the Sphinx that to say that it's at least over 10,000 years old. Impossible to be the 4,500 year date that Egyptologists claim because of the erosion around the body of the Sphinx is water-based. And water-based erosion, uh, because the climate can only have been before 8,000 years ago. It's been a desert there for the last eight to 10,000 years. So just based on the water erosion on the sides of the Sphinx and her body, she has to be older than 10,000 years. Hakim said 54,000 years. Aspect of the Great Mother. Stephen, we're coming up to our final break, which we'll take now. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenterJourney.com for more information. Many of us make choices in our lives based on how others react. But what should really matter is making our life choices based on what we intuitively feel. By tuning in to The Mystic and the Mystery with Inspired Intuition hosts Beth Porosik and Christine McIver, you'll receive the tools and inspiration you need to do just that. Your fears do not have to drive you, and you are naturally intuitive, creative, and whole. By believing in yourself, you can live the life you've been longing for. Listen for The Mystic and the Mystery every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel.
You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Have with me today, Stephen Malo. And Stephen, you alluded earlier in the show to a tour that you are involved in coming up in the second half of April. So perhaps you could tell our listeners about that now. Yes, thank you, Peter. It's April 15th, April 28th. Um, and the uniqueness of this tour is we're going to have six speakers. As I mentioned, myself and Christopher Dunn, incredible man. And I've been in the field with him uh, twice before in Egypt. His, his knowledge of the engineering is amazing. Brian Forster, who's an expert on Peru and Bolivia, first time coming to Egypt. He's going to be able to compare the technology and structures in Peru and Peru and Bolivia with Egypt, Gary Evans, and Yusuf and Patricia Awayan. Yusuf is the second youngest son of my teacher, Abdel Hakim. He has taken over in his father's footsteps. He is the leading proponent of climatology in the world today, and so this is going to be an amazing tour. We're going to lots of places where people don't go. We're going to see a tremendous amount of examples of the ancient technology and machining and present all different theories. Nothing's going to be out of bounds. We'll discuss aliens. We'll discuss Atlantis. We will discuss whatever anybody wants to. It's going to be an amazing experience. Uh, you have the link up on the website. People go to Gary Evans' uh, website, Infinite Connections. He, they can find it there, or they can go to chemitology.com and find it there. And we still have space open, so if there's anyone who's interested, they're going to have to act quickly to get aboard with us. So I'll just give you the Gary Evans website, which is infinite-connections.co.uk, and you can find all the information there about the two, which sounds absolutely phenomenal. And the beautiful thing is, uh, on that trip, Stephen, you're marrying together the technological aspects of it with Christopher Dunn and yourself, but also with the ancient teachings and meditation and connecting at the spiritual level as well. Because there was no separation. Again, separation is only the last 5,000 years. When we talk about the Great Pyramid, we call it a spiritual machine. And people need to understand both sides of it. There was no separation between spirituality and technology to these ancient people. And isn't it wonderful that Hakeem's son is now fully on board and, and leading the tour with you, Yusuf? Oh, it's an amazing story. It's going to be, I'm going to be very emotional on this tour because of that reason. It's like full circle for me. Uh, the whole idea of paying it forward, passing it down. He, what he taught me, I'm obligated to pass on. I pass on to Yusuf. Yusuf will now continue with the family line. There are already grandchildren that are online to come along. It continues. It has been, his family line was an unbroken oral tradition of thousands of years. And mentioning Brian Forster there uh, brings us, in some ways, to the Crystal Skulls. And how do they play into this? Well, it's interesting. The, uh, because we divide the Crystal Skulls into three categories, modern, old, and ancient. And I, work with, I worked with the two great masters of Crystal Skull research, Dr. Uh, uh, Marcel Vogel and F.R. Nick Nocerino. Nick Nocerino was the one who determined the three. We say that if you take a piece of crystal and it's carved into the shape of a skull over a thousand years ago, it is ancient. And the civilizations involved with that were the Maya, the Aztec, the Olmec, and the Tibetan cultures. And they seem to be very interesting. How it connects to ancient Egypt is a knowledge of crystals. 
like I said, sound and water. We're going to, one of the main themes we're going to be discussing in Egypt is the idea of acoustic harmonic resonance. Things vibrating in resonance together create effects. And there's no doubt that the crystal skulls were used that way for healing, for, in, for storing information. The ancient crystal skulls were the original computers. And that crystal can store information. It can store events. It can store people's vibrations. And so the crystal skulls can be used to, to extract information that's stored in them from the ancient past. And uh, we don't know about ancient crystal skulls in Egypt, but we know they had an amazing knowledge of crystal. And when we talk about vibration and resonance, crystal is very, very important. And in fact, is the knowledge of crystal was how they could cut the stone. Because when we talk about something like granite, it is not the substrate, which is feldspar, which is hard to cut. It is the crystal. And the crystal in the granite in Egypt is some of the highest in the world, from 45 to 55% crystal. So to cut and shape that, you had to have a tool that could cut crystal, crystal 775 on the scale, we see evidence of diamond tools. Wow. So Brian Force is going to be on the tour, and is he going to be linking then some of the uh, indigenous awareness from South America to Egypt with you? Absolutely. And the beautiful thing about Brian is he's married to a Peruvian woman who has a very, very close link to the indigenous wisdom of her culture. And so that, that they, he connected with me. We've become very close friends on Facebook in just the last two years because of the idea of Hakim, because of the indigenous tradition, which he was very interested in. So we're going to see very similar technologies in ancient Peru and ancient Bolivia with ancient Egypt. And the one who can tell the difference is Chris Dunn being in both places. So that's going to be the key to our tour is that Chris is going to be able to show the similarities and the subtle differences between the ancient technology of ancient Egypt and ancient Bolivia and Peru. So interesting, just for our listeners, Christopher Dunn was on the radio show a while ago, and you can go to my own website, petertongue.com, just go down the alphabetical list and find Chris Dunn, and he did talk about uh, the Giza power plant, as uh, Stephen has described. And also Brian Forster was on some time ago, but will also be on just before the tour, actually, on April the 10th. So That's he'll great. be... Filling us in. Um, so be- before we finish, because we're getting towards the end of the show, we've got about three minutes uh, left, Stephen. I'd love you to go back to Arkaniton and talk yes. a little bit about the significance of him. Yes. Again, we talk about these, these were not common names, they were titles. Uh, like Amenhotep was a title, Amen is pleased. So he originally was given the title Amenhotep IV, but he changes his name uh, along the line to Ach and Aten, the spirit, the shadow of the wiser, a reflection of, of enlightenment. What he was saying, uh, quickly as I have to do it, many people attribute to him inventing monotheism. He did not. He wanted to return to the age of Aten. We were in the age of Amun. He saw that religion had become corrupt. The priests had become fat, lazy, and corrupt. He wanted to return to a purer time, the age of Aten. So he brought back Aten as the main symbol. And he, he basically brought these teachings of just uh, that anyone can have an, a connection with the divine. Didn't need priests. Didn't need religion. Very revolutionary today. It was very revolutionary in his time. The Egyptologists think he was a failure. He ruled for 17 years, disappeared, and he was gone and embraced history. That is absolutely wrong. My second book is From Light into Darkness. I have five chapters of Akhenaten. We can trace Akhenaten's teachings to the rise of Judaism and to the rise of the Rosicrucian teachings. And that's the basis of that book. So Akhenaten's teachings did not die out there. He's still with us today. His teachings clearly can be shown, and this was Freud's whole intimation is saying that Moses was an Egyptian priest under him, that the basis of what is called Mosaic Judaism was Akhenaten's teachings. And so is the Rosicrucian teachings. And what was the role of Nefertiti in that time? What was what? Excuse me, I didn't hear that. The role of Nefertiti. Oh, his wife. She was, okay. We also have 
quickly. Teachings of Hakim gives us what he calls the five pers. Per means house. Per netter is what pyramid means. It does not mean uh, tomb. Per ba was tomb. So the key term is per ah. Per ah meant the high house. The Greeks misinterpreted it as meaning pharaoh, pharaoh, as a male king. It was not. There never were any male pharaohs. The per ah was the woman. We're talking about matriarchy. Descent went from mother to daughter. So Nefertiti was the per ah, not he. She chose him as her consort. So she was as much as important as the Atam teachings as he was. She was the key. Lineage went through her. Descent went through her. Women were not just equal in ancient Egypt. They were superior. Well, that's Stephen. That's brought us to the what a, what a great. <laughs> that's another show lined up right there talking about that. But I really, really appreciate your time today. We've packed a lot of stuff into this one we hour, did. We sure and I did. and I really appreciate your wisdom and and your obvious passion in talking about this. So thank you so very much. And I thank you for having me on. And have a great tour, and uh, hopefully we can reconnect sometime in the future and have you back on the show. Oh sure, I'd like to come back after the tour. There'll be so much to talk about. <laughs> I certainly will. Thank you. Thank you. So my guest next week is Ellen Hayakawa, and Ellen has done wonderful work with the misunderstood children, the children who are sometimes diagnosed as autistic, ADHD, and so on, when in fact they have deep spiritual awareness and are gifted uh, with psychic with gifts and also have challenges in the world. So Ellen is going to uh, give, give us an insight into those children and some of the wonderful examples that she has experienced in, in helping the healing and the, those children to adjust, uh, adjust to life uh, here on planet Earth at this time. And hopefully, from what Stephen has said today, we're moving consciously back towards an understanding of those children so they can actually live amongst us and feel good about themselves in the world to come. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I certainly have. Have a wonderful week. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.